Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Dr. Bruce Misrak, who is a professor in the Department of Economics at Rutgers University. He has held appointments at Boston College, the Wharton School, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and NYU Stern School of Business. Bruce is a founder and editor of Studies in Nonlinear Dynamics and Econometrics, which is devoted to using nonlinear analysis to understand economic and financial markets. His most recent work is on the market microstructure of electronic limit order markets in bonds, equities, and commodity markets. Welcome, Bruce. Thank you, Gail. So one of your recent research uh, papers uh, is on, um, you say that a rising fraction of U.S. equity trading volume is being executed away from the national stock exchanges on the OTC market. And uh, you have a theoretical model around the decisions around this and maybe some hypotheses why and how this is happening. Um, could you say a little bit about um, you know, uh, what type of data that you looked at and what conclusions you reached? Um, sure. Let me just provide a little bit of background for those yeah. that may not be going on uh, in the equity markets after they push the buy button on their web app. Or, or whatever whatever it is they're using to trade. Um, and, and, and so first off, most of us actually trade through a broker um, and uh, a broker actually has certain responsibilities around executing our orders. And um, they have very strong obligations in the equity market uh, for best execution. Um, and these include, for example, that you're going to uh, find the best price in the country potentially for these trades and that you're going to uh, compare those prices across a wide variety of different potential execution venues. Um, and so you might think that with, uh, we're up to, I think, roughly 16 exchanges now, stock exchanges, and among those 16 exchanges, um, you often will uh, find a good price, but your broker still has the discretion to actually route your order away from one of the national stock exchanges. And oftentimes you'll actually receive what's known as price improvement, meaning a price that's even better than what you see on the national stock exchanges 
by trading with a dealer in the over-the-counter market. And these dealers can either what's known, do what's known as internalizing the order flow. That's when they actually execute against their own inventory. Um, or in turn, they can also route it to a variety of alternative trading systems, which are sometimes called dark pools. And that's not a very good name, but nonetheless, they don't have some of the same uh, quoting obligations that the exchanges do. So uh, there's uh, any one of potentially 50 different, five zero different places that your order could actually be executed against based upon the routing decisions of your broker. And our paper looks at theoretically and empirically um, where certain orders are likely to go um, at different times of day. Now, your question also included an, a, a remark about the data that we're using. Um, and there's actually a, a good deal of transparency data uh, coming from FINRA, uh, a group that I've done some consulting for. And FINRA, the Financial Regulatory Authority, provides uh, weekly data on where uh, different orders are routed across uh, all the different symbols that are traded on the U.S. national stock exchanges. So certainly there are certain types of orders that are much more likely to, to be executed off exchange. And our model takes into account both the cross-sectional differences among the different types of equities, but also about the organic market conditions that make it more likely that your order will be routed off exchange. Um, and just to give you some idea of how likely this is, Somewhere in the neighborhood of about 40% of the equity order flow is actually executed away from the national stock exchanges. Yeah. So is there a deficit? I mean, is there any problem um, if the order were to execute in the OTC market? Um, so in, in, yeah. in terms of, uh, so, so if you're a small retail investor trying to execute 100 shares of Microsoft, I would say this is a problem not worth thinking about. Um, but if you're someone, if you're an institutional trader um, or someone who certainly trades more than 100 shares at a time, uh, this may be of some concern. And the concerns are not on the execution of any individual order. Again, the, the off exchange venues are required to provide price improvement beyond the national best bidder offer. So you'll actually get a price that's better than what you could have gotten on one of the national exchanges. The issue is what happens to the NBBO if the only order flow that's left to be executed on the national exchanges is what's called toxic, meaning order flow that might be informative or order flow that folks don't want to trade against. So the ability of the broker and then dealers to actually pre-select order flow and decide which of the venues that it could go to um, might make um, the adverse selection, the risk of trading on exchange very high and lead to wider bid-ask spreads. So in the equilibrium, it could actually wind up hurting the retail investor even though the retail investor is at least uh, nominally getting some price improvement over the NBBO. I see. So the OTC market also includes the electronic exchanges like ARCA? Uh, uh, well, ARCA has actually become part of the New York Stock Exchange. So now it, it, it is actually a national stock exchange. I see. Um, okay. These the, the largest of the alternative trading systems are actually almost all at this point, operated by the large broker-dealers. So, for example, uh, uh, UBS has one of the large uh, alternative trading systems. JP Morgan has a large alternative trading system. Um, and those are the leaders on the ATS side. You'll see a, a scoreboard of those in the, in the paper. I just don't have it right in front of me at the moment. Um, and perhaps more importantly, and, and more opaque to the typical uh, trader, are, in fact, the internalizing broker-dealers like Citadel and so on, who are um, just massively handling a, a large percentage of the order flow in a variety of capacities, for example, uh, both, as a, both as a market maker and then also as an internalizing broker-dealer, 
Citadel sees something like one in five of all the equity trades in the United States. Hmm. So for a retail trader then, um, this could, so if, you, if you're making a market order, I would imagine you have no control over it and you're really at the mercy of the broker uh, to, to get you the right, uh, right venue. Right. Uh, but, but the retail, I guess the retail investor is at a distinct, distinct disadvantage in this case, right? Well, so, so first off, it's interesting that you bring up market orders because market orders are, in fact, almost 100% internalized. So what the broker knows once you make the decision to actually choose a market order for for purposes of execution is that you're likely uninformed. And then those market orders are sold to the internalizing broker dealers and are almost all executed off exchange. Roughly 100% of market order volume is being routed off exchange. Right. And when they're routed, are they they really executing? uh, If you're buying, are they really executing at the ask price? Or uh, are they doing something with that order? Um, so, so the internalizing broker dealer, in order to actually jump to the top of the queue, typically has to offer a small amount, usually a fractional amount of price improvement over the MBBO. And in fact, brokers will, will brag to you, oh, we saved you 12 cents or 11 cents on this particular 100 share order because we got you a fractional price improvement over the MBBO. Um, this is not answering, of course, a broader question that, the retail trader is certainly not not going to be able to assess, which is what would spreads have been in the absence of the fact that 40% of the order flow is being routed off exchange. I see. So, so, so what, so what were the general conclusions uh, from, from that paper? Well, so we, we're not necessarily taking a, a normative position about equity market structure. We're just simply trying to describe the conditions under which more order flow is likely to be routed off exchange. And those are pretty easy to describe. Um, When bid-ask spreads are wider, you're much more likely to be routed off exchange. When volatility in the market is higher, you're also more likely to be routed off exchange. Um, And then finally, when on-exchange depth is actually higher, you're less likely to be routed off, off exchange. So these are the observable state variables for someone who had the sophistication to be able to observe the market in its entirety, um, and they would be able to have some predictive analytics if you, you know, did did want to control your routing over where you're more likely to find uh, an execution off exchange rather than on. Right. So these are hedge funds, and so uh, I don't know the exact number. Uh, before the COVID issue started, there was something like 15 million day traders in the U.S. retail day traders uh it might have doubled now so it's um it, it's sort of the the unsophisticated or less sophisticated i should say retail trader against the more um more information based large hedge fund type uh trader uh is it, both in the market and the retail trader i would imagine almost always loses well, so yes, in, in, in terms of relative sophistication, and um, we have a, a large uh, number of folks who are trading uh, through retail brokerages. The, the uh, brokerage that people like to talk about at the moment is Robinhood, which was the first of the many companies to, to offer free commissions. Now, actually, many, many other companies have also offered free commissions. But you know, when you're a, an economist, you should start to understand that free can't possibly be free. And so the first question that you should be asking is, is, well, how is your broker offering you free commissions? And the answer is, is because 
um, they're actually receiving payment for the order flow that they're receiving from the broker. And in fact, the payment from the order flow is subsidizing the free commission. So you should begin to ask yourself, well, what are the costs to me then in terms of execution quality or potentially execution speed, although that's not an issue for um, market orders. Um, but what are the costs to me in terms of execution quality of the fact that my order flow is being routed away from a potentially preferred destination? Yes. So there are then institutional traders which have, ha, are, have developed their own sophistication in terms of routing. So the, the largest and most sophisticated of the institutional trading groups, companies like Vanguard, for example, or BlackRock, are doing almost all of their um, execution quality analytics internally. So they've, they've developed their own buy-side algorithms. They've developed a great deal of sophistication around transaction cost analysis, and they've learned how to um, route in this market, which again, when there are 50 potential venues uh, between exchanges and dealers and ATSs and so on to execute, you need a great deal of sophistication in thinking about how to route, and they've learned how to do it. There's still a very large intermediate ground of institutions that are in fact not very sophisticated and probably would benefit from learning more about how their orders are actually executed. Right. And I would imagine, you know, the only way to take advantage of this is through uh, some kind of programmatic means, right? So, you know, if a typical retail trader sitting in front of a computer and making decisions to trade, um, it, it won't be fast enough uh, to, to take advantage of any of these things, I would imagine. Uh, yes, it's a combination both of the amount of data that would have to be input into your decision process in order to make a, an optimal routing decision. You'd You'd need to be intaking information, as I said, from 50 different venues in order to make this choice. Um, and there's also the issues which we've skirted a little bit around, which relate to speed, which is the market that you see on your screen may not be the market that's there a millisecond later. Right. I know that certain retail trading platforms like Interactive Brokers has what they call a smart, smart routing incorporated into their, into their platform. Um, I don't know exactly what they do with that smart routing. Does it do anything for the retail investor? Um, so I, I don't know the specifics behind their uh, smart order routing algorithm, but uh, perhaps uh, uh, you know someone m might might do their own investigation. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, the proof would have to be in the pudding. I, they'd have to show me substantial benefits over um, either relatively simple rules for routing, or or in fact. Uh, better than any of the many, many uh, so-called so, so, so agency brokerages, uh, brokers that actually work for uh, large institutional traders and try to help them get best execution. So um, I, I'd have to see some data before I'd believe that it was actually working in a way that would help the retail investor. Right, right. Um, so another paper that, that, uh, uh, that you have recently um, looked at the Bitcoin spot and futures market microstructure so this is between the CME futures market and the stock, you know, spot exchanges. Could you could you talk a little bit about that paper? Uh, gladly. Uh, so the the market for digital assets, which uh, the the two assets that we study in the paper are Bitcoin and Ethereum, which are the two largest in terms of trading volume. Um, there are some others that are coming up, for example, like Ripple. But uh, the two that have attracted the most institutional trading interest are are Bitcoin and Ethereum. And I would say the two factors behind that are, first, the creation of both futures and options markets at the CME and the CBOE for those assets. Um, and then in the process, of course, of creating a futures trading market in, in, in those two digital assets, uh, the CME also 
brought some institutional clarity to the market. And by that, there's a, a formal settlement process then in which Bitcoin prices settle at the end of the day and also at the end of the expiry month of the futures contract. So um, the uh, CME has at this point uh, licensed five exchanges to contribute to the settlement price. At the time we wrote our paper, there were only four, but there's a fifth now, uh, Gemini, which has actually joined the settlement process. Um, and so what we do is we study then these four exchanges, uh, it would now be five if we, we were updating the analysis, that are contributing to the CME uh, Bitcoin settlement prices. And we just study the microstructure of these exchanges uh, just as if you were trading any other commodity. And I think one important point of the paper is just to try to show where does Bitcoin stand versus the trading of lots of other different kinds of commodities. And um, one that stands out, for example, is there's roughly the same trading activity, certainly at the time we wrote the paper, um, in Bitcoin and Palladium. And so that should actually be your null hypothesis, is that there's a, nothing particularly special about Bitcoin or Ethereum. Um, they're, in fact, just another futures contract trading on some underlying asset. Um, and we have about the, the market volume of Palladium. And uh, is there really much difference between, for example, Bitcoin and Ethereum and Palladium? And on, the, uh, on, a, on a very microstructural level, the answer is no. Those markets actually trade with similar liquidity um, and similar market impacts to other commodities that are traded. Um, the one thing that is, of course, uh, uh, interesting and, and challenging to, to Bitcoin, though, is, is that Bitcoin and, and Ethereum have both proven to be much more volatile than Palladium. And so understanding how the market reacts to the volatility of the underlying assets has been one of the challenges. Right. And uh, does the volatility then provide some advantages to, again, going back to our equity trading uh, microstructure, uh, the more sophisticated uh, traders, could they take advantage? I know that there are a lot of retail uh, traders on the Bitcoin, too. Um, so are they taking advantage of? Well, so, so for instance, uh, co-location, which is the technological capability that requires high-frequency trading to really take place, has not yet taken off in, in the digital asset markets, um, in part because the volumes don't yet justify the kind of infrastructure investments that have taken place, for example, in the equity uh, markets or in, in some of the larger futures markets as well. Yeah. Um, so, so in, and, 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 and so while we see, uh, for example, a good deal of high-frequency trading, uh, we're not seeing the ultra-low latency trading that's going on in some of the other markets because uh, the exchanges are simply not developed to the point where they allow co-location. And all, all I mean by co-location is, is that these are, are exchanges in which the um, uh, basically the large trading firms are allowed to co-locate their trading technology and algorithms at the exchange to give them a slight speed advantage over other traders. So we don't actually see high-frequency trading dominating the market. Uh, we, we have some estimates uh, both on the speed of cancellations, which is one, one thing that high-frequency traders do is they often place orders and cancel them very quickly. Yeah. We also look how quickly orders are taken up in the market by other high-frequency traders. And we are actually showing relatively low, I think this is one of the surprises of the paper, relatively low high-frequency trading participation in the market. Um, there's a lot of volatility because uh, the assets are indeed very volatile, not, not because of the participation of a ultra-sophisticated or ultra-low latency set of market participants. Mm. Let's talk about high-frequency high trading a bit. So another paper that you have, uh, you know, you looked at um, the, the high-frequency trading during the U.S. Treasury open market 
purchase this open market operations. Um, and during that time, the HFT firms uh, seem to have some behaviors that almost uh, potentially predictable and, uh, and, and generally, generally getting them some sort of arbitrage profit, uh, it looks like. Uh, well, what exactly happens there? Well, so a, a couple of things. Uh, so first off, uh, I, I think we've moved beyond uh, uh, the Michael Lewis view of what's going on in the high frequency trading world. I, I don't think he, he even had it right five years ago, and things have certainly moved on since then. And so first off, we have to understand that all the important institutional market participants in the equity market and, and, and any other market which trades large volumes now are indeed have the capability to do high frequency trading. So every person who uh, makes markets on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange or makes markets in the NASDAQ or in the Treasury futures at the CME are all high-frequency traders. They are enabled with technology, generally co-located technology, that enables them to execute very quickly against orders that are standing in the limit order book and also then to cancel any orders. And the reason for that is, is that um, in today's market, um, if you make markets, and all, all it means to make markets is, is that you're uh, offering both a bid and an offer price on the security. So you're, you're willing to buy at a certain price, you're willing to sell at another price, but information is constantly arriving in the market. And because of this constant arrival of information, you need to be able to get out of the way of informed traders. And the best way to avoid what's known as being adversely selected, which means trading with somebody who knows more about the asset than you do, is to try to cancel. And high-speed technology enables you to make markets today. You, you simply could not profitably make markets in any of our major securities markets. And this is not just equities. It's in uh, a whole variety of assets, unless you had high-frequency trading technology, which enabled you to avoid adverse selection. The paper that you've talked about looks at some specific windows in which adverse selection might have been very likely. And these are um, the release of the uh, uh, permanent open market operations on the part of the Federal Reserve back during the financial crisis. And so these are important information releases to the market. And we see when there are these important information releases, a couple of things happen. So the first thing that happens is, is that spreads tend to widen. So in fact, high frequency trading firms cancel because they don't want to get in the way of more informed traders. Sometimes they have the information themselves and then they'll trade on a proprietary basis and trade directionally. Um, if they believe that the treasury auction has been particularly bullish, for example, for equities, they may try to sweep the book and take out all the standing liquidity from folks who weren't fa as fast as they and couldn't cancel in time in front of the good news. So we observe during these special windows when a large amount of information arrives in the market that high frequency traders um, become less likely to make markets and more likely to trade I directionally. See, I see. And I, I would imagine the premium uh, in those activities, um, if I understand uh, correctly, the premium is, is coming down because a lot of people now have these types of technologies which did not exist five years ago. Yeah, so the, the, the cost of participating in these markets has come down um, and there's been a, a leveling of the playing field. And uh, people make some estimates on what high frequency trading profits are. Um, we have an estimate in that paper as well. Uh, and, and I think most folks think that the profit to high frequency trading has come down um, because of, of the fact that there, there are more participants in the market. Um, so uh, it doesn't mean that uh, high frequency trading is coming to an end. It, in fact, just means that it's become the norm. Anybody who's willing to put out uh, a bid and an offer price in a market 
needs to be able to cancel those orders quickly in the event of the arrival of new information right, right, in the market. Yeah. Another paper, Bruce, I found very fascinating is um, the, the, it's entitled New Evidence of the Marginal Predictive Content of Small and Large Jumps in the Cross-Section. And, and so this is, this is basically saying that you can, if you understand the small versus large jumps that happens in the price process, uh, you have some predictability uh, of future, future returns. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And, and uh, so uh, I first should talk a little bit about, for your listeners, uh, what jumps are. Um, and then I'll talk a little bit more about the methodology that's in that paper. Um, so uh, first off, uh, p- perhaps some of your listeners do have familiarity with stochastic processes and the typical Brownian motion then is a, is a continuous process. Um, but we think that uh, a, a better process, better stochastic process for prices is one that includes the possibility of occasional jumps in the level of the Brownian motion. And these jump processes are uh, likely associated with information events, but uh, they could also just arise or, or organically because of uh, events within the limit order book. But nonetheless, detecting them requires some fairly sophisticated uh, statistical procedures in which you break down the movement in stock prices into its continuous and its jump component. Um, And this particular paper then goes one step further, and then it breaks the jump component into small jumps and large jumps. And it turns out that the large jumps then are actually not very predictable. And those are indeed, it looks like associated with information. So this is uh, an announcement by Starbucks that they're not going to make their profits or uh, General Electric is going to exit uh, uh, the light bulb business, news that might be considered to be negative for the stock price. Um, there's quick and rapid adjustment in the stock price that, that y- usually looks like a jump. But in fact, what we find is, and this is for the purposes of the cross-section, that the small jumps, the jumps that aren't quite as big as those that are associated with information events, actually do generate predictable information in the cross-section. So those small jumps, if we can identify them separately from the big ones, are what give us this additional predictive right. yeah. power. And I guess a naive uh, look at the, the skewness of the returns wouldn't be sufficient because the, the large jumps would uh, would have uh, would change that skewness quite dramatically, right? Yes, it's it's uh, definitely so. So there have been papers written uh, at least a decade or so before ours looking at potential skewness premia in the cross section. Uh, Peter Christofferson has a paper, and and uh, there's been some development of that literature. But we we show in fact that these small jumps are are separate, not not in fact priced in the same way that skewness is priced into right. the cross okay. section. And, and finally, um, I I want to talk a little bit about uh, you know the paper that you have, where you looked at the price differentials between um, the WTI uh, price as an, and the Brent price, and you you have identified three different regimes where uh, since these are fairly, I would imagine, substitutable commodities, you shouldn't see a significant price differential, but you see a, a significant difference in a, in a regime that is pretty long, like four years or something like that. Yeah, so there, there's been uh, quite a lot of change in the uh, petroleum market, both, both in the United States and then also, uh, also globally. Um, I, I would start by saying that uh, 
Um, folks may be surprised to find, but the United States has actually become the largest oil producer in the world again. Um, and most of us, I think, know the backstory behind that. It was related to the shale uh, technologies, the fracking technologies that enabled U.S. oil producers to go back to mature formations and produce both uh, large amounts of petroleum and natural gas as well. Um, the, other, the other area where there's been an absolute price boom, even though we don't discuss it in the paper, pr pr production boom has been in natural gas. Um, and so all of a sudden, uh, we have the United States becoming a, a gigantic oil producer. Um, and then all of a sudden, the, the legal and, and geographic and economic constraints of a global market then start to open up. And in, in particular, then, uh, the oil in the United States is in uh, for example, in the Permian Basin, which is out, out near Texas, there's also certain formations in the Dakotas. Um, and there's even some still in the east. The, uh, the Pennsylvania oil fields where oil was first discovered in the United States have also become large producers again due to fracking. Uh, and then the problem is, is that you've got a whole bunch of oil in a place that people don't need it. And this is not only the fact that there aren't a lot of folks living in the Dakotas or in the Permian Basin and that it needs to get to New York City. It also potentially needs to get to the global market. So the huge surge in U.S. oil production resulted in a disconnection between the domestic benchmark, which is called the West Texas Intermediate Crude, which is a bit funny because it's actually deliverable, not in Texas, but in Oklahoma. Cushing, Oklahoma is the delivery point for West Texas, which is kind of funny. Um, and then there's the question of what's the global price? And the global price, for the most part, is the Brent market although there has actually been a, 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 good deal of a good deal of pricing that's also moved to Dubai and Saudi Arabia, but Brent is still largely the international price. And Brent, for your listeners who might not know, the delivery point is actually in the North Sea. It relates to uh, production in Scotland and England and also to, to a large degree in Norway. And those are also geographically remote locations. So you have an international price uh, differing from the United States price, and what we would expect would be some kind of arbitrage. We'd expect the oil then in the United States to try to get to the delivery location where it could, in fact, be sold for a higher price. Um, and some estimates are that um, all things equal, you could probably get it there for something like three or four dollars a barrel, which is the maximum amount that those two prices should probably be separated. The difficulty was that until 2016, end of 2016, um, we actually had a ban in the United States dating all the way back to the time that we had discovered oil in Alaska that prevented us mm -hmm. from exporting crude oil. And so we had all this landlocked crude piling up in Cushing and other delivery locations uh, that could not get to the international market and be sold at potentially higher prices. And so the story works, uh, you know, economics usually works faster <laughs> than politics. And in this case, the politics took a while, but the export ban was ultimately lifted. The delivery infrastructure has been uh, transformed. Most of the pipeline infrastructure in the United States, for example, was oriented towards bringing crude from a variety of locations into Cushing. So, for instance, there was a, a, a pipeline that went from the Gulf up to Cushing. And even though it sounds like a trivial thing to do, it was actually a big infrastructure project. That pipeline was reversed. And so now this pipeline can bring oil from Cushing down to the Gulf, where it can then go on to ships and then be delivered at Brent and other higher price delivery locations. And the story is an econometric analysis of that process. And what we show is, is that the oil price disconnected for a period of about four years, the United States price disconnected from the international price. Um, and with the lifting of the crude ban and these other infrastructure changes that have occurred since that time, um, it's resulted in the US price reconnecting again to the international price. Um, and 
while this may seem uh, like something that matters only to, uh, for example, sophisticated traders who want to move oil and pipelines and tankers around the world, um, it also affects the domestic consumer because, in fact, uh, really since about 2010, the domestic price, the price you pay at your retail gas pump, is actually being more driven by the Brent price than it's being than it's being driven by the WTI price. So even the everyday consumer, somebody who just wants to fill up his tank and go out for a drive, um, is still impacted by these international right. dislocations. Yeah, so even if there was a constraint on exports and the physical movement um, of, of oil from uh, from Oklahoma to to the international markets. Um, there was no sort of financial instruments and strategies one could have played to to take advantage of that. Well, so uh, th there there are two different types of futures markets in oil. Uh, one which results in physical delivery, and the other that results in just financial settlement. And so we actually experienced uh, some of the problems with physical delivery just recently during the COVID crisis, as. Uh, uh, people know during the depths of the COVID crisis when nobody was driving, um, the oil price, the physical oil price actually settled at a negative price. And for folks that have wondered how that would be possible, well, the answer is, is that you have contracts which require physical delivery. And so you have a whole bunch of people taking a whole bunch of oil that they don't necessarily want and don't have a place to store. And as a consequence, the price can actually drop below zero, which it did. It got down as low as I think 20 or $30 negative below, below zero because yeah. folks didn't want the oil. So there are, again, these issues regarding, uh, again, financial and physical settlement. Um, and, and storage is in fact a, a finite commodity. The sophisticated participants um, in, the, uh, in the oil market um, are, for example, flying planes and, 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 and other thermal sensing equipment over the so oil storage tanks in Cushing. And there's a small picture in, in, in our paper, I believe, uh, uh, I'm not sure it made it into the published version, showing that Cushing is basically just a gigantic oil storage facility. But nonetheless, this wave of oil that was coming from the shale boom in the United States overwhelmed the amount of storage that was in Cushing. Um, and there simply was no place to put the crude. And, and so price uh, can't, can't ultimately settle that market um, if there isn't a place to store this commodity, even though in, in theory, it's it's right, nearly right. infinitely yeah. storable. It's so the same issue that we ran into, like you say, in negative pricing, because I guess all the tankers were full mm -hmm. and essentially we, mm -hmm. <laughs> we exhausted mm -hmm. uh, the storing capacity in the, in the tankers, I would imagine, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it's fascinating. Uh, uh, thanks so much, Bruce, uh, uh, for for the time that you spend with me and uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully, hopefully, our listeners got something out of uh, out of all this, uh, both the microstructure um, research that you have done in various markets, as well as the pricing differentials that seem to crop up uh, for um, for reasons that are that that appear to be um, pretty well understood, uh, but it seems to persist uh, for for reasons that we can't really take uh, take advantage of. It looks like. Well, uh, thanks, Gil. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about some of my research. I'm always happy to try to get folks interested thanks in some so of the things Bruce. I've been looking at.